When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good afternoon and greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution in Military Affairs, a podcast about war and warfare and the future of armed conflict. I'm your host, Amos Fox, and thank you for joining me today. Given the recent events in Israel, I think it's an opportune time to uh, talk about sieges. Sieges are one of those topics uh, in, in contemporary military discourse, contemporary military thinking. It tends to get uh, brushed aside because of the the connotations associated with the, uh, the 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 antiquated connotations associated with the idea uh, and use of the word siege. Uh, but in today's episode, we'll we'll dig deep into uh, the theory and the application of the idea of sieges uh, to demonstrate clearly that the concept is not some antiquated idea. Um, in which trebuchets and ballistas dominate, uh, but in actuality are a very, very integral part of uh, modern armed warfare, and moving forward uh, will be, continue to be a, a, a very important part of armed conflict. sieges we uh we tend to overlook them in the dis- discourse today um but in actuality if you take just below the surface of uh reporting and writing and thinking about contemporary armed conflict you'll see that sieges are, are, are quite prevalent in today's uh methods of war fighting and so if you go back to the beginning of russia's invasion of ukraine in 2014 what I what I call the Donbass campaign. Uh, you find four sieges, four significant sieges there, all that 
played big parts in the uh, the course of the war. So there's the siege of Luhans Airport, which happens uh, between June and September of 2014, completely destroys the airport and is a fairly significant battle. And then you have the siege of Illavisk, and I've written about this a couple places, but specifically there's a paper I published with the Association of the United States Army on this, I think, in 2021. Uh, but the Siege of Illavice ran from July to September 2nd, 2014. And this battle was decisive in the truest sense of decisiveness and that it, it, drove, a, it drove a political decision uh, and military outcome. So the Siege of Illavice resulted in the Minsk Protocol uh, at the beginning of September, I think September 5th, right, which was one of the early ceasefires that was, uh, you know, violated essentially before the before the ink was even dry on the document. But in the definitional sense of decisive and decisiveness, the siege of Illavice was was decisive in that regard uh, because it, it fueled the Minsk uh, the Minsk Protocol. Next, right on the heels of Illavice, you have the siege of Donetsk Airport, and that ran from uh, late September through January of 2020, uh, 2015. And again, much like the siege of Luhansk Airport, uh, the siege of Donetsk Airport completely uh, eviscerated the airport, uh, destroyed it. Almost nothing is left of the airport uh, to this day because of because of that battle. And that battle, that that siege is significant too because it came right on the heels of Illibis, so it showed that uh, the Russian military understood the power of of sequence and following up victory with another victory. Sticking with the theme of sequence, Baltiva, the Battle of the Baltiva, the siege of Baltiva, uh, depending on who and what you read, occurred right on the heels of Donetsk Airport. And so Debaltova essentially was the uh, the nail that held uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics together. It was right on the border of the two, or is right on the border of the two uh, proto-states, and it is a significant rail and uh, line hub, a distribution hub, a road network where everything converges. And so, given Russia's uh, unique supply situation, the Baltica was a very important uh, point for uh, supply uh, throughput as it came in, and then it was distributed out back to the uh, to its forces, both its, its Russian forces and its Russian proxy forces there in both Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast. And so, the Battle of the Baltica, or the Siege of the Baltica, began right as the battle for Donetsk Airport was concluding, so uh, mid-January of 2015, and then Debaltiva went through February 15th, 2015. Debaltiva was very similar to Ilovaisk in that it drove a political decision as well. Debaltiva uh, fueled the Minsk II agreement that came right after uh, Ukraine's defeat there in that battle. Uh, and that battle was an interesting one in that uh, it was truly... Uh, a, a siege in the way that you would think of a siege, you know, encircle the city, cut the power, cut the water, uh, and then just try and uh, bleed out your adversary until the battle uh, came out on profitable to your end. And so 
when you look at the Donbass campaign, again, that early uh, invasion of Ukraine that Russia did in the 2014-2015 period in which you know, Russia used uh, a proxy army but then also supported its proxy army with its own uh, land forces. You had four significant sieges during that period. The siege of Luhansk Airport, the siege of Ilovaisk, and the siege of Donetsk Airport, and then lastly, the siege of Debaltseva. Two of those were uh, traditionally decisive in the sense that they fueled political decisions and changes in the course and flow of the war's outcome. Uh, and so the siege of Ilovaisk, decisive in that it fueled the Minsk Protocol, the siege of Debaltseva, in conjunction with everything else that had happened up to that point, uh, but to include the siege of Donetsk Airport, fueled the Minsk II Protocol. And so a uh, significant uh, role there that sieges played in that in that Donbass campaign. And again, as we move into the uh, post-February 2022 invasion um, analysis of, of the campaign, you see sieges pop up again, most notably at uh, Mariupol and the uh, Ostomol uh, metalworks plant there, there in Mariupol. But uh, I'm not going to dig into those, uh, the sieges from uh, the post-2022 period yet, uh, just because I think the information right now is, is a bit immature to talk in any kind of detail about those. Um, but again, just note that they did play a, uh, a role there. So with that, uh, we'll transition to Syria. Syria um, saw a significant number of sieges, but in addition to the number of sieges, that occurred in Syria, there was a significant duration associated with their siege of Suin. In uh, Ukraine and in the Donbass, during the Donbass campaign, the longest siege was the siege of Donetsk airport, which went from September to January. Uh, but that was clearly not the, uh, you know, that was not a, a significantly long siege. The other sieges there were a month, two months, depending on how you calculate the time of the sieges. Uh, when you move to Syria, however, you have you know, the Siege of Buda, for instance, was five years, almost to the day. And so the sieges in Syria were significantly longer, more devastating, and uh, and different from those those in eastern Ukraine. Looking at the sieges of Syria chronologically, the first one to discuss would be the Siege of Aleppo. Uh, the Siege of Aleppo occurred from July uh, 20, uh, 2012 through December of 2016. And the Siege of Aleppo saw multiple actors competing for multiple outcomes. I don't think that the discussing the geopolitical um, purposes here or the actors is necessarily relevant to discussing the siege aspect of this. So I'm going to skip over that uh, for today. And we're just going to talk about the actual sieges and then jump into uh, what that means in terms of how actors operate um, when they're conducting sieges. Not talking tactics necessarily, but talking the purposes of, of each of those. So you had Aleppo in 2012 to 2016. You had Kobani, uh, the Siege of Kobani from September 2014 to March 2015. The Siege of Raqqa, another significant siege there from November 2015 to October 2017. The Siege of Deir Azor uh, from July 2014 to September 2017. And then, as I mentioned, uh, briefly earlier, the Siege of Buda, which is you know, significant, um, April of 2013 to April of 2018. And during that one, 
the Siege of Gudu is an also uh, was also where you saw a lot of the chemical weapons use um, by Bashar al-Assad's regime, and uh, just all sorts of horrific, horrific aspects of uh, siege uh, warfare, if you will. Uh, even though I don't like that term, but in this case it fits. Um, a lot of the traditional things that people associate with siege warfare really plays out during the siege of Gudu. Now. Looking beyond that, when we look over at Iraq during the same time, generally speaking, you had the Siege of Mosul, all right? Uh, so the, the Siege of Mosul, roughly this, the battle for Mosul began in October of 2016, uh, and, and uh, the, the battle concluded in July of 2017. Now, the Siege of Mosul, when specifically the siege started and didn't start, I think is up for debate, depending on how you classify tactics and whatnot, but I just generally uh, rope it all up into there uh, because essentially that's what you had was the siege. You had the encirclement of the city and then the methodical clearance uh, of the city by the Iraqi forces, supported by U.S. forces and other, other partners during that. Now that we've laid the foundation for the reality of sieges of modern armed conflict, Let's look at uh, what modern modern sieges are and what they aren't, uh, and importantly, why they will continue to remain relevant as we move forward uh, in, in armed conflict over time. Sieges are generally omitted from discussion today uh, when we talk about uh, how how conflict is is fought. Uh, I think part of the reason is it doesn't sound futuristic enough, right? So people generally don't want to talk about something that sounds antiquated and old. I'm going to talk about new things, new ideas, and uh, how, you know, like this is why I think drones and ideas like that, the transparent battlefield, right, the ubiquity of sensors and all this, see, uh, you know, create a battlefield in which nothing, nothing you do will go unseen and whatnot. AI is going to create all these, these perfect knowledge command uh, and control networks. Uh, those things sound cool and uh, talk about technology in a way that uh, that sieges don't in, in many regards. However, uh, the reality is sieges, sieges are a part of war and they will continue to be a part of war. Um, and part of this is uh, a big part of the reason, if you look at Anthony King's writing, a big part of the reason that sieges remain uh, relevant and will continue to remain relevant is that modern military forces continue to constrict in terms of size and force structure, so they're smaller. And so sieges tend to offer or offer a uh, smaller force sanctuary and the ability to offset a lot of the a lot of the asymmetric advantages or even even uh, parity type advantages of an opponent. And so by operating in a city, a a force can give themselves a bit of an upper hand. And so by virtue of operating in a city, another force will likely try to. Uh, negate the benefits that the city offers, which in turn fuels sieges. And uh, again, going back to Tony King and his book, Urban Warfare in the 21st Century, um, he talks about micro-sieges, and I think that's important to note too. So, you know, a city like Baghdad, uh, you know, it's got whatever, whatever number of million people in it. I don't remember off the top of my head, but conducting a siege of Baghdad, for instance, is going to require significant, significant amounts of force that are likely going to exceed uh, any military's ability to do much more uh, 
than, than encircle the city and, and hold that city. Whereas micro sieges are when you uh, conduct sieges in parts of the city. And so the siege of Sadr City is part of uh, the U.S.'s attempt to, to take control of Baghdad and control the violence in Baghdad during Operation Iraqi Freedom is a good example of micro-siege. And so micro-sieges are, are, are sieges within larger cities um, that, that drive to the same purpose of a siege, but are conducted on a, on a, a far smaller scale. And so, um, so that's why I think that you'll continue to see sieges moving forward. And that gets to another point. There's a lack of a, a modern taxonomy on sieges and how sieges are conducted. And so lately I've tried to introduce some of that through some of the things I've written. I published a paper in Rusi Journal a few years ago uh, titled On Sieges. And in that I try and try and prescribe a bit of a, uh, a process, a taxonomy, if you will, so that the community of interest has, has a, a language to speak about sieges. But the lack of that uh, taxonomy and the lack of that language I think undercuts uh, many people's ability to to have a discourse about sieges. Now, moving on from that to what sieges really are, uh, sieges are attritional battles or operations of encirclement position, right? So uh, I think positional warfare is often overlooked in the discussion of armed conflict today, but a siege in, in both the, the besieger and the besieged standpoint is a form of positional warfare. It's using position um, to one's advantage, right? And so when we look at that, uh, digging a bit deeper into that, destruction is the currency of a siege, right? Death and destruction. That's how you bring about whatever it is that you're trying to do. So generating submission through destruction is the goal of the siege. Uh, and then it's important to note, too, that encirclement, in a siege is relative and not necessarily uh, all-inclusive. So you don't have to completely encircle an opponent or an adversary for it to be considered a siege. There are various types of sieges you can leave. Uh, you know, the besieger can intentionally leave routes into and out of a, a, a into and out of a sieged actor's location. Uh, open if they choose to, or sometimes uh, it just is the result of not having enough uh, force to be able to fully encircle it. I think an important aspect too today that is overlooked when we talk about sieges is weapon system ranges, right? So um, today, I think in many cases, you can also compensate for the lack of force through weapon systems, and weapon systems can help you or help an actor create that encirclement effect right because that's an effect that we're looking for more so than physical uh, troops on the ground blocking or disrupting access to or from a uh, besieged actor's location so weapon systems can compensate that i think today that's important to note uh as well as we think about sieges you may not necessarily have the boots on the ground but if you have the the amount the uh a sufficient amount of indirect fire uh available to compensate for the lack of boots on the ground in that aspect, then I think you can uh, you can still create that encirclement effect. Additionally, sieges are often a response to a situation's variables. Um, so there's forces, there, there's sieges that can happen in the open, uh, in which forces are caught in the open, and then the force itself becomes uh, besieged. 
and this is something I refer to as an open siege. And then uh, the situation can also result in a, uh, you know, the city becoming, and this is the common one, the city becoming a siege location. Uh, but also as part of this, uh, in many cases you see sieges uh, and the tactics therein used as a, a terror tactic uh, to um, intimidate the local population into not supporting whomever has sought refuge in the city. And so that's important to understand as well as we as we look at differentiating the two different uh, major types of sieges. Porous and impermeable sieges, impermeable sieges are the two uh, major types of sieges. And so it's fairly intuitive. Porous uh, means open and impermeable means completely sealed. So permeous and impermeable are dependent on a couple things. Um, so first, it depends on the aggressor's policy aims. Uh, and so if they're trying to, if the aggressor or the, the besieging actor is trying to punish perhaps uh, the besieged actor, they may operate their siege in such a way that extends the duration of the siege uh, to inflict punishment over time on the actor. And so um, that's important to understand because sometimes policy aims are driven towards quick quick victory, in which case uh, the siege may be completely, you know, a siege could be completely uh, closed and permeable. No one can come in, no one can come out. And the military force conducting the siege is doing everything they can to feel a quick win uh, for whatever reason, right? There's, there's a million reasons that could go into that. Conversely, um, you know, if, if, if the actor, the besieging actor wants to punish those on the inside and uh, yeah, break the will, whatever, whatever term you want to use, whatever phrase you want to use here, they could potentially leave that siege open to a degree too, right? Let small amounts of uh, supplies, small amounts of aid come in, uh, in, and out of, in and out of the siege um, in order to drag out the duration of the siege. So, again, um, that, that's another viable option that happens there. And so part of it, too, when we look at porous and impermeable sieges also, as I mentioned before, uh, is based off the, the besieging actors' uh, forces available, how much force they have available to actually conduct the siege in relation to the size of the objective. And so, again, if you have a relatively small force and a big objective, but you still want to conduct a siege or you still need to conduct the siege, the siege will likely be one of those micro sieges that Tony King talks about. Um, and then porous sieges are also uh, the product of partial and incomplete encirclements. And again, we talked about why that may or may not be the case. And then you've got the targets. Targets can be a military force all alone. That's it. That's, that's the target. And so that's why sometimes you'll see those sieges in open environments where it's just a military force surrounded in a, in an open space. Uh, the product of a siege may also be a civilian population. We don't like to talk about that necessarily today. We like to think that we've moved beyond that. Uh, however, uh, some of the sieges, specific, specifically those in Syria, have shown that civilian populations are the target uh, in, in some sieges. You also have physical terrain, right? So sometimes the uh, the purpose of conducting a siege is to gain a piece of terrain. 
and so um, that that's a target within a siege, and then also any combination therein, right? So it could be a military force and a piece of terrain. It could be the military force, the population. It could be the population and a piece of terrain. Any of those uh, working together could be could be the target of a siege. And then I think the last point here on this before we move on. Um, there's two points that I think are germane to this discussion that are that are clearly overlooked when we talk about uh, sieges um, in, in modern conflicts. Sieges are a game of dominance and dominance and resource expendi- expenditure in an adversarial context. Right, so uh, we have to factor that in when we think about both conducting a siege, but then also being on the on the receiving end of a siege. Uh, because those factors, dominance, right? And that doesn't just mean like showing up and saying, I'm the biggest, toughest guy on the block. There's there's an actual, um, I think there's an actual equation that goes into thinking about dominance uh, that is helpful, a good heuristic. Uh, and the same thing with resource expenditure in an adversarial context. And then the last point on this is that sieges are found both in conventional and irregular wars, right? So this is a completely... Germane uh, to the discussion of sieges, especially both in the past and and looking to the future, uh, they happen in conventional war. They happen in a regular war, and in many cases, in the in the irregular war sense, um, they help fuel wars of attrition. Right. So in many cases, these irregular wars that we see um, aren't just aren't just non-state actors running around conducting insurgencies. They 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 fuel a lot of the, the the attritional wars that we're seeing unfold today. A besieged actor actor has basically three options available to them if they're caught in a siege. The first option is to solidify their position and conduct an attritional defense. Uh, this is typically better for an actor that's under siege in an urban area um, than than that in an open environment. The goal is to withstand the attack, uh, enduring the losses that come in on them. But uh, force the the besieging actor to increase their investment costs. So the amount of personnel, material, will, time, and public perception, uh, hopefully to the point that it bankrupts the besieger, or when it becomes too uneconomical for them to continue. The siege of Mosul is a good example of this option here. So what you have was the Islamic State in Mosul under siege uh, by Iraqi and U.S. Uh, and partner forces. And so the Islamic State did everything that they could to increase the costs on the Iraqis, making this a significant battle of attrition, block by block, building by building, uh, and life by life, in hopes of uh, creating such an uneconomic situation for the Iraqis, as well as creating a situation in which uh, the international community and public uh, public perception viewed this this attack as barbaric. This clearance of the city, the elimination of the Islamic State, as the barbaric act on the Iraqis' part, which in turn would hopefully cause the uh, the siege to to break. Now, in this case, that that didn't work, and ultimately the Islamic State was defeated in the siege of Mosul. However, that that is a good example of the the option one there to solidify the position and conduct and attritional defense. A uh, big reason these are conducted to, to solidify the position and conduct an attritional defense 
is the result of not having uh, teammates relatively close that can help. Teammates being a very, very generic term for partners, allies, uh, your own forces, whomever. Uh, but somebody close that can help you, um, you being the, the besieged actor, help uh, break the siege. And so that's something to consider when thinking about this as well. An isolated actor that's conducting, uh, that, it, that is under siege, uh, they, they are likely conducting the, the positional defense, uh, the attritional positional defense, because they have nobody else in the area to help them. And as a result of this, this, this also often is why these type of sieges turn into long, drawn-out affairs in which death, destruction, collateral damage, and uh, the evisceration of cities in many cases uh, is, is the effect. Now, when we look at option two and option three here, these are generally um, these generally happen when a when a partner has or a, a besieged force has partners in the area. So option two here is breakout and link up. That's what I like to call this one. And so the idea here is the besieged actor possesses the capability to penetrate the encircle encirclement, regain its tactical and operational mobility, and regain freedom of action. And this is equally viable in a closed or urban setting as well as open areas. And this, this option can also include an air component. Now, where this differs from the other, uh, from, the, from the previous one is that it requires significant strength, right? The besieged actor actually has to have a pretty good amount of combat power inside the encirclement in order to uh, attempt this, this option, right? And in, in, in order to break out and link up. And so I think when you look back at history, uh, the U.S. Uh, Army's 10th Corps during the Korean War's Chosen War campaign is a good example of this option. They were encircled by the, uh, the Chinese and, and North Korean forces uh, uh, up around the Chosen Reservoir. They possessed sufficient force to, to punch a hole in the, in the perimeter, right? And uh, also given the terrain, it was, it was challenging for the for the adversary, the U.S.'s adversary there to fully encircle them. And so they were able to break out and link up from that, from that siege, siege location. Uh, the third option here is uh, option three, which I call break in and link up. And so this is almost the inverse of option two, the break out and link up. So on break in and link up, uh, the besieged actor has to hold on long enough to receive external help. This is a, a viable option in both closed or urban uh, and open sieges and can also include an air component as well, right? When we think of like the Berlin blockade, this is something that potentially comes to mind. Uh, and this is, this is in a similar situation where they don't possess the significant strength or mobility uh, to penetrate and break out of the besieged location. And so it's dependent on a friend in the area uh, close enough to help uh, break in and link up with their force. And then uh, once they've done that, once they've done the break in and link up aspect of this, there's three potential options that they can do. They can defend in that location together. They can withdraw or they can receive material support and then play it by ear from there, whether defend or withdraw. Uh, and so this is another viable option that you see uh, occurring in sieges, uh, both in the past and today, but also I think you'll see uh, continuing along in the future. From an analytical standpoint, there's a few findings that I think are important. So as I said at the beginning of the podcast today, sieges are a game of dominance. I think you can think of dominance not as just like uh, 
I've got more toys than you, and therefore I'm I'm dominant. I think dominance. Uh, I'm going to throw out a little uh, an equation here. Um, is one's resources plus the time available divided by enemy action plus the self-sustaining capability that one has. That is how dominance is generated and maintained. Dominance is not a correlation of forces and means comparison. Dominance is very discreet, and as a result, dominance and sieges, I think this is part of the reason sieges are a, a point or area application of dominance. Uh, and so those who conduct sieges, I think, in many cases actually understand that dominance is not a, a correlation of forces and means comparison, but something that has to be applied for a specific set of time, for a specific amount of time, with a specific set of resources um, to generate a specific effect. The other point here is that sieges are a game of resource consumption and respective time. And similar to dominance, I've got a, uh, a heuristic here, a an equation that I think is helpful to help think about this. So resource expenditure in an adversarial context is equal to the quantity of one's force plus the size of one's frontage plus the number of points of enemy contact along that front plus the duration of enemy contact divided by one's on, one's on-hand resources plus the ability of that actor to replenish those resources. And so I know both that, that equation and the dominance equation aren't necessarily conducive to uh, to a podcast, but if you if you go out and find my Rusi paper on on sieges, uh, you'll see that reflected in there and you'll see how it, uh, it's tied to, to sieges and I think it'll help you better understand that. The other point here is, the other finding is sieges are a guessing game. Being encircled, the besieged force doesn't know when or where a localized attack will occur, and so they're always on edge. They're always uh, committing resources, whether that's people, attention, whatever the case may be. And then, if not encircled, the besieger does not know when or where a localized attack will occur either. And so, again, it goes back to that always being um, on edge and not knowing what's coming from where. Additionally, sieges, uh, the destruction from a siege isn't just levied against the area in which the siege is conducted, okay? And this is something I glossed over. Uh, I didn't even gloss over. I barely mentioned today during this discussion. But uh, the areas that support sieges um, generally suffer equally high amounts of destruction and death as uh, the siege location. And so, for instance, if you go look at the Battle of Donetsk Airport, um, and I have a paper I published on that, I think in 2020, through the Association of the United States Army, and it talked about this specifically in there, but my siege paper with Rusi also talks about it. But if you look at that uh, Battle of Donetsk Airport, the siege of Donetsk Airport, the city of Pisky, which was a small uh, community outside of the airport, was uh, used as a, as a basing location for both sides throughout the, throughout the battle. And it was completely, essentially, wiped from from the map uh, as a result of its its contributions uh, to the battle there at the Donetsk airport and this isn't just something that I found with the Battle of Donetsk airport but if you go look at all the different uh, sieges that I've highlighted here uh, in the discussion today you'll find a a comparable level of destruction in the areas that support the sieges mentioned in those discussions and again you can find that those, those papers that are that I've previously published on this on the subject 
like I said, due to uh, due to time constraints uh, today with this podcast, I, I I glossed over that, but I think that's really important. And uh, the last point here is that sieges are often decisive. They often are the uh, from the Battle of Philippi's to the Battle of Debaltiva uh, to Mosul, which was decisive in its own right. That was essentially the the battle that broke the back of the Islamic State. Uh, it didn't result necessarily in a declaration of victory right away against the Islamic State. However, it did. Uh, it, it was the culminating battle in a series of, of fairly big battles that had occurred up to that point. And so sieges are often the last gasp of, uh, of success or victory for the competing actors. If you're interested in some further reading on sieges, I have a couple of recommendations here as we close out today's podcast. First is Anthony King's Urban Warfare in the 21st Century. I mentioned that a couple times in today's discussion, but it's really uh, a great book, a great book on urban warfare, and then also does a great job of discussing uh, sieges and micro-sieges in, in armed conflict. Additionally, I mentioned my paper uh, on sieges uh, through Ruth's Journal, published in 2021. Uh, additionally, I co-authored a paper in the Journal of Military Studies uh, last year called a legal review of sieges. Uh, I recommend you go out and find that one too. That talks a lot more about the legal aspects as it relates to international uh, international humanitarian law uh, and, and how sieges fit within that construct there. Uh, additionally, Peter Andreas's Blue Helmets and Black Markets, The Business of Survival and the Siege of Sarajevo. That book does a good job of discussing how and why uh, actors will leave sieges open um and, and, and why you'll see that happen in, in, in sieges sometimes and then lastly uh siddharth uh Koshel's positional warfare a paradigm for understanding 21st century conflict published in Roost journal in 2018 uh that's another really good paper that, that gets into the how and why and the purposes behind sieges so with that i'd like to thank you for your time and uh, thank you for listening to Revolution of Military Affairs. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.